BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes, Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm fond of Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework of life. It's very simple. And I think we all need simple heuristics at those critical moments in life. And his is simply this. Will I regret not having done it when I'm 80 years old? And if the answer is yes, he does it. And if the answer is no, he doesn't. For me, the thought of not moving forward was way more painful than the thought of striking out on my own, and that motivated me to jump in. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Today, we have a guest who has a number of important lessons to share. Lessons about the power of a vision, of a conviction, taking risk, thinking big even when you're small, betting it all when you have the shot. Believing in a vision, but adjusting when needed. Listen hard, think smart. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, a thinker, a thoughtful philanthropist and social engineer, bridge builder. He heads his own firm, Altimeter, with $20 billion under management and is in the middle of SPACs, funds, Snowflake, the Board Challenge, etc. He's Brad Gershner. Brad grew up in a small town in Indiana, smart kid in a small environment, but that small environment did not limit him. College, junior year at Oxford, law school, lawyer, deputy secretary of state of Indiana, then got off the government path and got his MBA from the Harvard Business School, one of the early folks at the now giant venture capital general catalyst, 
and ran some companies, sold them, invested for others, and then started his own fund in one of the boldest and riskiest ways I've ever seen. He is wildly successful in business and gives that same time and attention and innovation to making our society and world better too. He's wildly curious, fun, a surfer, traveler, a good friend, an Enneagram 7, and even a board member at iHeart2. Welcome, Brad. That's the best introduction I've ever had in my life, Bob. Thank you. We've got a lot to dig into today, but before we get started, I want to explore you in 60 seconds. Ready? Let's do it. Do you prefer Indiana or California? California. Boston or Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley. Facebook or TikTok? Facebook. Salty or sweet? Salty. IPO or SPAC? Altimeter. (laughs) Coffee or tea? Coffee. Law school or business school? Business school. Boat or plane? Plane. Window or aisle? Aisle. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Dollar or Bitcoin? Dollar. Rent or own? Rent. Apple pie or Apple computer? Apple computer. It's about to get harder. Childhood hero? Warren Buffett. Technology you can't live without? iPhone. Favorite app? Twitter. Most memorable place you've traveled to? Nepal. First job? Chief of staff to the founder of Forest River, which ultimately sold to Berkshire Hathaway. Preferred beverage? Vino. Favorite food? Fresh fish. Favorite city? New York. And the final question. What did you want to be when you were growing up? An entrepreneur. Okay, let's get started. To set the stage for how vision, conviction, and hard work are at the core of what you do, I want to go back to the founding of Altimeter. Although we weren't really close friends then, we were close enough that I saw the story. It's one of the most inspiring origin stories ever. So let me paint the picture a little bit. It was 2008. You had decided to leave a great role at Par Capital and strike out on your own. You had an impressive track record as an investor and had lined up some $250 million for your first fund. Then Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt and all but $3 million of that $250 backs out. And clearly a $3 million fund is almost not a fund. You'll have to live on your savings. You'll have to sell everything you have. It'll be a struggle. And getting back to $250 million is almost impossible. At that moment, who knew if the world was coming to an end? And yet, here's the classic you. Even though you had a young family to support and you had a lot of high-paying jobs as other options, you started Altimeter anyway with just $3 million. Why on earth would you do that? Well, first, you were there, and I might not have done it without you. So thank you. I'm fond of Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework of life. It's very, very simple. And I think we all need simple heuristics at those critical moments in life. And his is simply this. Will I regret not having done it when I'm 80 years old? And if the answer is yes, he does it. And if the answer is no, he doesn't. And I would say, I didn't know I was using that framework, but I was. And for me, the thought of not moving forward was way more painful than the thought of striking out on my own. And I suppose a little overconfidence and the fact that I had designed my life in a way that didn't require a lot of resource helped. 
But it was really that idea that if I didn't do this, I would regret it. And that motivated me to jump in. So what does this say about conviction and about a vision? Lots of people have visions of things, products that could improve the world, companies they might want to start, etc. The execution is difficult. And the execution is predicated on deep conviction. I had spent a decade preparing for that moment. I had helped start General Catalyst. I had started and sold three other companies. I had been in law school. I had practiced law. And as you mentioned, I'm curious. I'm a student of the game. We made our first trade on November 1st, 2008. And I had studied people who I had a lot of respect for, Seth Klarman at Balpost, who had started in the recession of 1981, or Paul Reeder, my mentor from Par Capital, who had started with a similar amount of capital in 1991 in the SNL crisis, and his first investment was into an SNL. Or even you take somebody like Tiger Global and Chase, who started in 2000, right after the dot-com blow up. So there was plenty of examples in my world of folks who started small during periods of duress, driven by deep conviction and their own capabilities. And so for me, it seems from the outside looking in like I was crazy, but it made perfect sense to me. What did your prism look like? How did it change after this collapse of Lehman Brothers, because clearly you put the whole plan together before the collapse. Did you change the vision? Well, I have to say, I was scared. I had just gotten married 10 months earlier. I had just had my first child, Lincoln. We were renting a small basement apartment, which you remember in Boston. Michelle believed in me, but was none too happy about the idea that I walked away from great paying jobs with this young family to do this. And I couldn't answer the question definitively as to how long this would last or whether the world really would end. I had set up a small advisory board. And I remember a couple of the people on that advisory board said, you're crazy. Don't do this. Go back and get your job. And I had started three other companies. And every time I had started those other companies, it was just a sketch on the back of a napkin. And I was by myself. And so to me, I was familiar with that moment, the founding moment. I had deep conviction in my capabilities, and I'm an optimist. I didn't think the world was going to end. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I thought if it did end, this would make a good story to my ending. <laughs> so this is a recurring theme, but this was one of the best examples of you thinking big when you were really small. How did you get yourself to think big enough? Well, if I really rewind the clock, my dad was a dreamer, first child to go to college, and he ran a small business in a small town that made auto parts in the late 80s. And an acquirer came along and the acquirer said, we want to buy this company. And my dad said, well, everybody in the town works here. And so I'm not going to allow the company to be acquired unless you agree not to lay off the men and women who work here and not to cut their pay. And of course, the acquirer agreed to do that. And six months later, they reneged on their promise. They fired people. They cut people's pay in the middle of one of the worst recessions in our country's history. Interest rates were 18 percent. Inflation was 15 percent. 
it was a dark time. And my dad was devastated. You know, in a small town, your word is your bond. He had given his word to these people. And so I watched my dad rally those troops and say, we're going to go start a competitor. And everybody followed him. And it was an insane thing for him to do. He was starting an auto parts business. There was not such a thing as venture capital. He borrowed money from the local town bank. He mortgaged our house, put the house up as collateral, the car up as collateral, everything as collateral. And in the middle of a recession, in the middle of those interest rates, and the Japanese gutting our car industry, and he tried to make it work. And he ultimately went bankrupt because the world conspired against him. But I watched that noble fight, and it was heroic. And I was in a late elementary school, early middle school, and I thought to myself, you know, someday I'm going to complete that journey. I went to law school because my grandfather said to us kids, none of you are allowed to be entrepreneurs. You all have to be doctors or lawyers or architects. So I honored him. I went to law school, but I always knew in the back of my mind that I was fit to live out that dream. This really is an interesting theme, which I want to go through a bit. You've built everything you've got in very interesting ways. And we want to get into your insights, lessons, philosophies on everything from business to philanthropy and social action. But let's stick with the childhood era. You were born 1971, grew up in Syracuse, Indiana, three siblings. You talked a little bit about your dad, but can you paint the picture of that place and that time of the 70s and 80s? what it felt like, and how that might have shaped you? Oh, it's a great question. The place, it's a town that was 3,000 people in the winter and 25,000 people in the summer. It's near the border with Michigan and as one of the most beautiful natural lakes in the country that I grew up near. And so families from Chicago and Indianapolis that were pretty wealthy would come to the lake in the summertime. In fact, Eli Lilly famously made the lake his summer retreat and had a giant estate there. So I had this window into this world of business and success that I wouldn't have naturally gotten from a small farm town in Indiana. My family had no money, but I never missed money. I thought I had everything. I grew up on the water and racing sailboats and skiing on a small icy hill in the winter times. And so there was never a sense that we didn't belong or we were lesser than. But to be clear, they were hard economic times. It was hard on my family. It was hard on my mother who worked two jobs. But I was deeply observant of what was going on in the world because of this window of my dad's experience. So I was worried about the United States, right? Like most kids growing up at that point in time, you were worried about an actual war with the Soviet Union. I was worried economically for the country. And so the 80s for me, which was middle school through college, was just a transformational time. You were a smart kid, but how was that nurtured and developed in a small town like this picture you're painting? Well, first, I was the youngest of four. My oldest brother's 15 years older than me. I had really smart siblings. I had a grandfather on my father's side who was patriarch of the clan, you know, on his bookcase were physics textbooks and biology 
and texts on politics, and he was all self-studied. He couldn't afford to go to school. So study and conversation and debate, that was just part of our family. And nobody was taking it easy on the youngest kid around the table. And so I ended up a national debater and state debate champion. But I'll tell you, I got really lucky, Bob. The public schools in Indiana, the small rural public school was pretty damn good. I had great teachers. In Indiana at that period of time, there was a push to set up in the public school system a gifted and a talented program. And this would ultimately go on to be politically controversial at a national level. Is it right to pull certain kids out or not? And so I'm not on one side or the other. I'm just giving you one person's experience. So in the third grade, they pulled four of us out of the classrooms one day a week. And they assigned us a gifted and talented teacher named Connie Bailey. And she ultimately became not just a teacher, but a life coach. I went through some turbulent times like any teenager does. My parents got divorced and Connie was often there to challenge me, to bail me out and to make sure that I was thinking big enough. You went to Oxford your junior year. You graduated from law school. You went on to be deputy secretary of state in Indiana. Clearly you had aspirations to be in politics. And then you went to the Harvard Business School. What happened to the politics? I was always interested in what was going on politically in the world. I thought politics was a lot of the reason that my dad's business collapsed. And so when I came back from Oxford, our senator, great senator for the state of Indiana, Dick Luger, who had been a Rhodes Scholar, who was a very well-known moderate Republican, he and Sam Nunn, the great Democrat senator, helped to denuclearize Russia. And I wrote him a letter and I said, hey, I just had this experience at Oxford. I'd like to come to Washington and work with you on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and just learn. And he was generous enough to give me a job. And then he would call me a couple years later after I was out of law school. And he asked me if I would accept an appointment as Deputy Secretary of State in Indiana. And that had been a stepping stone for Evan Bayh to become governor. And so it was kind of known that that was a plum assignment and was giving you an opportunity to become governor or whatever. The problem was I was poor. And I hated the idea that I was going to spend most of my time asking people for money. I felt like I couldn't be true to my North Star if I was beholden by that process. And so I made a really difficult decision to leave. And I thought to myself, I'm gonna make a million dollars and I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna run for governor. And as fate would have it, I left, went to business school, and along the way, I concluded that I could have far more positive impact on the world by doing exactly what I'm doing, as opposed to going back and running for office. I want to know if these things came from childhood, if there were the seeds in your childhood. What drove you to be that person who can think out of the box, take big risk, and think big even when you have little? I think they're two interrelated things. One is I'm curious about everything. I want to know how everything works and I'm happy to study it. And then I like to talk about it. I like to debate about it. And so that's the formation of conviction. And conviction is the basis for being able to think big or act big because what appears crazy from the outside for the highly convicted person, for Elon Musk, Tesla was not crazy. For Elon Musk, SpaceX was not crazy. 
He was so convicted that the world was going to electrify, right? That starting a company that was going to transform the biggest industry on the planet to electric was not crazy. And on the second hand, it's not risky and here's why. Once you decide that there's something more powerful in life than the fear of failure, once you decide that it's not all about the mountain of money you amass or whether everybody loves you, but it's about doing the things that make this a life that matters, that when I look back, I'm not going to have regrets, right? So I have maximum conviction. It doesn't appear that risky. And even if it is, it doesn't matter because the very pursuit, the very adventure is why we're here. And so those two intersecting beliefs, I think, really form the foundation. So you finished Harvard Business School. Coming out of the background you do, wouldn't naturally say you're going to go to tech, but yet you were one of the founding group at General Catalyst. What drove you to tech? What was the path? In 1989, I had an AP English teacher named Joel Robbins. He was a great teacher, and I was so blessed with so many great teachers. But I remember Joel said that we had to write our high school papers using this service I had never heard of called CompuServe. And I got fascinated with this private computer network where I could communicate with others and I could discover other information. Well, fast forward, I go away to law school and I encountered the Netscape browser. And I remember gathering my friends from law school around the computer terminal and telling them this changes everything. And they all looked at me and said I was nuts. And I graduated from law school in 1996. And I couldn't very well find my way to Silicon Valley. But I went back to this big law firm in Indianapolis. I was the only person in the joint that knew anything about the internet. So they said, you're our internet guy and our venture capital guy, which trust me, in Indianapolis in 1996 didn't mean a whole hell of a lot. But I got exposed to all of these software entrepreneurs, internet entrepreneurs. I got thrown on a case in 1996, 97, where a domain squatter had squatted on the domain name indianapolis500.com. And it just so happened that we represented the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And so I was learning some basic things about the internet or as much as I could at that point in time and became pretty convinced by the time I went to Harvard Business School that I had to work in Silicon Valley. And 1999, Harvard Business School was a very different place. Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, they couldn't even get people to show up at the interviews in 1999. We were all doing case studies on startups and technology and as working with David and Joel on a case study to start General Catalyst and invest in their first company that I'd ultimately become the CEO of. And so it was just happenstance. I graduated in May of 2000. Michelle decided she wanted to stay in Boston. I decided to stay in Boston and help General Catalyst get started. And by May, pretty much the world was already melting down. None of us knew how bad it was about ready to become. And I had the good fortune of having chosen to be CEO of an online travel company. And that was about the only thing that worked or survived this period. And so Expedia immediately tried to buy that company. We ended up in a bidding war between Expedia and Barry Diller and his head of M&A at the time, Dara Kashir Shahi, who now runs Uber. And so Rich and Dara and I would find ourselves 
in May of 2001 in Barry's backyard in Hollywood, wondering how the hell we had gotten there. But we had both just sold our companies, Rich Expedia and me and LG, to USA Networks that would become IAC. It's a pr- pretty good story. I want to get into this phase a little bit. Bloomberg actually at one point called you the online travel king. At the time, a hell of a compliment. And then you decide to go run some capital at Park Capital. And by the way, I know because I, like a lot of other people, tried to get you to come run some companies I was involved with, and you decided on this other path. Once again, you take this next career path. It's quite different from what you were on. Why that change? Well, you know, in those intervening years, I thought I was going back to General Catalyst, but a classmate of mine and I started another company called OpenList that we had sell to a public company in Seattle named Marchex. And then Paul, who had been an investor in that first online company, he said, you know, I think you would be great at this business. And what was interesting to me is he wasn't running a venture capital fund. He wasn't running just a hedge fund. He was running a pool of capital like Seth Klarman, like David Abrams in Boston, like Buffett before them. They just invested in great companies. They didn't worry if they were public or private. They sought them out. And I said to Paul, the thing is, I don't really know anything about running public money. I don't know how to build a hedge book. I don't know the sophistication of risk management. And Paul said, well, I can teach you all of that. And I said, well, I'll do it, but only on the deal that I work for free because you're a legend. I don't know if I'm going to bring you any value. I said, part of the reason I don't want you to pay me is because if I like this, I'm coming in to study the hedge fund business, the public investing business. And if I like it, I'm probably going to start my own. And I just want to tell you that on day one. And if you don't want to hire me, that's fine. And Paul said, if I can't convince you to stay here, then hopefully I'll invest in you and it will all work out well anyway. And that's exactly what happened three years later. I built the technology practice at Park Capital. I led the Series B venture investments in companies like Zillow, where I went on the board. I had learned a lot about Google and this small little company called Priceline. And I said, Paul, I just want to put all my money in those two companies. And he was fine with that. And so I basically had a very concentrated public book. It was a very essentialist approach to the business. And I ate lunch with Paul every day. I picked his brain about everything in the business. And he was the best mentor, the best friend, the best co-conspirator I could have ever asked for. And I learned over the course of two and a half years, not only that I loved the business, but I developed my own point of view on how I would evolve that recipe and build a firm that would focus exclusively on technologies. Well, so let's make that jump then. We began today talking about you starting Altimeter. And I know it's not a simple story and I don't want to turn it into that. Give us that really simple line of how you went in just a decade from tiny to big and moving from Boston to Silicon Valley along the way. Well, the vision from the start was to build the most important crossover fund in the world based in Silicon Valley. By crossover fund, it meant a firm that was a life cycle investor doing both venture capital and public market investing. I had a very clear vision of what we wanted to build. And I was lacking two things. I was lacking in 2008 capital because nobody was going to give capital to a new fund manager. I went to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Nobody knew if they were even going to be in business. And so I went to UBS and a gentleman named Mike Teresi said, listen, Brad, I have no idea if we're going to survive, but I like you. And so let's give it a go. And he helped put us in business and enable our first trades. The vision was very clear from the start. 
I never doubted for a second that we would get the capital we needed in the fullness of time. Remember, PAR had gone from 3 million to well over a billion. So I had the roadmap as to how the power of good work could get you there. So I just put my head down, went to work, and we delivered great returns in those first few years. I'm going to make you uncomfortable for a minute, Brad, because I think you have some wisdom to impart on both a business and personal level. And sometimes someone becomes the thing, the it person, Taylor Swift, LeBron James, Ralph Lauren, Jackson Pollock, Steve Jobs, Oprah, Mark Zuckerberg, Martha Stewart. All the stars align and the world notices and puts them on a pedestal to be admired and opens all the doors for them. Now, because of your modesty, you will disagree, but I want you to indulge me just a minute. Arguably, you have hit an it moment and you have this unique moment of opportunity. So here's the question. How do you use this unique moment for your business, the good of the world, and for you and your family? I certainly violently disagree with the company you put me in. But I will say this. There is a lot more velocity and momentum and opportunity coming at us today than's ever come at us. And when you set strategy or tactics in life, you have to decide what you're not going to do. And oftentimes that's a lot harder than thinking about the things you are going to do. And I think a lot of those folks that you mentioned, all the incremental opportunities that come their way that distract them, you do them, and it dilutes your own performance, your own success. And it's that dilution and distraction that then leads to unhappiness. And you end up doing something every day that you never really wanted to do, right? Just think of it in a simple model where you run a small firm, maybe 20 people, you love it, it's a tight-knit family, you're growing it, you're doing excellent work. And then all of a sudden the guns come out and now your capital base goes up by 10X. You go from 20 people to 200 people. And now you spend your day managing people. You spend your day dealing with human resource issues, with politics, with all of that stuff, rather than doing what you actually love to do, which is meet with the world's best entrepreneurs and figure out how to help them on their growth journey. And so the way we've dealt with that is first, we have a cultural North Star at Altimeter. It's the book, Essentialism, The Art of Doing Less, Better. It doesn't mean staying small. It doesn't mean refusing to innovate. It just means if something's not a fast yes, then it's a quick no. And I think that for me, it probably was embedded somewhere in my DNA. Maybe it's because you're a simple kid from Indiana, but it is now a dominant life philosophy for me, not just a business philosophy. My life is predicated on friends and family and experiences. And on this journey, I derive a lot of happiness from being curious and trying to come up ways to leave the world better than we found it. And so the art of saying no has been a critical component of that. When I think about how we're leveraging the platform to do what is best, I'm incredibly excited because I think there's a need in a post-technological revolutionary world to reconstruct the social contract, right? We have massive and growing wealth disparities in this country. And, you know, many people are starting to demonize capitalism. They're starting to demonize Bill Gates. I think that capitalism has been the greatest source for good in the world. And I think it's important that those of us who have voice, those of us who have platforms of scale, use that to architect a world that we all want to live in from issues of equity and equality 
to issues of wealth disparity, to issues of healthcare and education. And so we're going to use Altimeter as an equally powerful platform to fund entrepreneurs who in their very daily acts are changing the world and to speak out about the issues and to fund the issues that we think are critical to designing the world we want to live in. We'll be back with more Math & Magic with our guest, Brad Gershner, after this quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. Oracle.com strategic. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Brad Gershner. So you invest in businesses, you coach and advise execs, you build strategies for companies and investments. Let's get into some of your thinking. 
One of our folks here at iHeart had a view on corporate culture, really nice articulation, which we picked up and use company-wide now, is saying that corporate culture is the operating system for a company. If it doesn't work well, none of the programs under it will work well either. It's really the foundation. What do you think is essential to any successful corporate culture? And you've seen a lot of them. How do you build it? How do you get buy-in? How do you fix it if it's broken? Well, the number one thing I think is consistency. Taking the time to know that corporate culture is an operating system. And then lots of different operating systems can work, right? Google had an operating system based upon decentralization, 20% time, et cetera, which really is about empowerment and trusting the individual. But that required a recruiting culture that was the antithesis of command and control. But they made it work. There were probably command and control cultures that work, certainly works in the military. And so I don't endorse the idea that there's only a single operating system. But I think it's essential that you have one, that everybody in the organization knows that that culture and your mission and your values are lived every day, that they see them reinforced every day, and that they see the person or the people at the top living them, not just talking them, but living them. And I think if you do that, it leads to this really powerful catalytic effect. And so you have to empower the team to have an intellectual framework to be able to make those decisions in a way consistent with the corporate culture and values and mission without you in the room. So I think for us, there's not a single person in Altimeter's organization that wouldn't immediately say essentialism, wouldn't tell you what it means and couldn't apply it in their daily exercise of their job. There also isn't a person in Altimeter's corporate culture that wouldn't tell you how important having positive social impact is as part of the fabric of our business. And you reinforce that in big ways and small, right? They know that I'm going to give most of my wealth away during my lifetime, and we challenge others to do it. They see what we're doing with the board challenge. They see what we're doing with Invest America. They see what we're doing with lowest highest with give power, et cetera. So they see you living your principles. You're not just talking your principles. I'll just give you a small example. At the end of last year, we had a good year. And just as a surprise on Christmas Eve, I sent a Slack out to everybody in the organization. And I said, I would like for you all to give $10,000 away between now and the end of the year to any organization that is meaningful in your life in any way. Sit down with your family on Christmas day involve your kids, involve your spouse, and have a conversation. And then we'll get it funded. And the stories that came out of that, the conversations that it lit up around the family tables, the really meaningful things that people did that I would have never expected, organizations that I had never heard of. But it's reinforcing that corporate culture in a way that is, again, living it through action. So let's move from corporate culture to management. If management is about getting results through others, what are the qualities you see in managers who do that the best? You know, it's the job of the coach or of the CEO. The temptation is often to jump in and do it for people. But ultimately, you have to recruit excellence. You have to retain excellence. You have to expect excellence. And then you have to inspire excellence. And so when I'm talking to everybody helping them understand the mission 
that we're on. And the mission's not just about making more money for our LPs, although all of that is important and those are all enablers. But the mission is enabling entrepreneurs to do something the world needs, whether you're funding Moderna that's developing vaccines or you're funding Zoom, which is developing a video-first infrastructure platform that connects families and relatives in the middle of a global pandemic. It's way more important. And so I think you have to set that vision. You have to inspire. And then, yes, one of the tough things, whether you're coaching an NBA team or whether you're coaching an investment firm, we make slow decisions on the B player, the B plus player, the B minus player. And I often say to our teams, they can be absolutely fantastic friends, but that doesn't mean that they're the right fit for our team. And we have an obligation to make sure that we're assembling the best team on the floor every day to deliver against the promise we're making, not only to our investors, but the promise that we're making to the entrepreneurs and the founders and the social impact we want to have on the world. Let's talk about the idea of change sneaking up on big companies. I look back on the blue chips of the 80s and 90s and compare it to today. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, Amazon, Salesforce, maybe the telcos, Facebook. It's all changed. Is it inevitable that blue chips, because they have such a huge footprint, such a big infrastructure, will eventually be replaced as the world changes? Or can companies of that size pivot? Could IBM have become Microsoft? Could HP or Nokia have become Apple? Could Walmart have become Amazon? For a hundred years of business school history, there was a law of diminishing returns that was taught. This idea that as you get big, innovation slows down and there are diminishing returns to scale. Over the last 20 years, we've really started to question that orthodoxy. And there's a belief, certainly at Altimeter, that there are increasing returns to scale. I remember when people said it was impossible. We will never have a trillion-dollar business. We have a business today approaching $2 trillion. People said Microsoft was dead in 2000. Microsoft has been reborn in gaming, in cloud computing, right? The elephant can dance as a questioned Lou Gerstner when he was running IBM of no relation. So to me, I'm a strong believer that there isn't a law of physics around diminishing returns. There isn't a law of physics around big companies, but those decisions that most big companies make, command and control does break down, it does slow down innovation, which is the deliberate cultural decision at Google not to have a command and control system because they didn't want that to happen there. There are lots of ways to attack that problem, but I'm a believer that innovation can and does happen at scale. If you look at the percentage of the NASDAQ represented by the top seven companies in the year 2010, and you look at that same percentage of the NASDAQ represented by the top 10 companies in 2020, I think it's gone up by 2x, which means the big companies took an increasing share of the pie, not a decreasing share of the pie because Apple continued to innovate, because Google continued to innovate, because Amazon, rather than resting on its laurels and saying books are good enough, you know, two-week delivery is good enough, they said, no, we're going to deliver everything and we're going to get it there in hours. And along the way, we're going to transform all of computing from data centers and client server to a utility in the cloud. You know, I don't think that innovation is only the domain of venture capital and small companies. So, You've made a lot of money. 
for you and others. You've come a long way from your economic circumstances in Indiana. But let's get into personal stuff. Does financial success have much to do with personal success? Well, you know the answer to that one. The truth is Maslow's hierarchy, there is a basic level of safety and security we all need as a prerequisite to be happy. And that is economically linked. For some rich person to say, like they did when I was growing up, money doesn't matter. Money matters. Because growing up in a house with a bankrupt dad and a mom working two jobs and losing the house and losing the car sucked. It caused stress. It caused drinking. It caused divorce. Like That's not a fun place to be. But once you get beyond that, you sure as the hell better figure out a definition of happiness that's not predicated on making the next dollar. Because the return on that incremental dollar as a contribution to happiness is really low. And so for me, I've kept life really simple. I've had a couple indulgences on things that are passions in my life. But the reality is I look to other sources for my happiness. I'm working as hard as I have ever worked. I have three siblings who are basically retired and they ask me why I work. I say, because I can have maximum impact and I love what I do every day. And so the way in which it's changed our lives is I don't worry for myself or my family about basic needs. And I know if any friend in need, we can help. And that makes me feel terrific. But I also feel a deep burning passion, desire, pressure, responsibility to make the most out of the privilege the universe has dropped on us. And that's not a burden on me. It, it excites me every day. But it means that, you know, that really is the source of my happiness. It's not about going and buying yachts and spending the whole year on vacation and doing things like this. You're the founder of the Board Challenge. It's a movement to improve the representation of black directors in corporate U.S. boardrooms by asking companies to pledge to appoint a black director within the next year. That was done back in September. So where did the idea come from? How's it going? Well, you know, we live in a household, and I give a lot of credit to Michelle, where issues of social justice matter a lot. We talk about issues and responsibility and privilege, et cetera, with the kids. And so like so many other people, we saw the events of Black Lives Matter, the needless killing of far too many young Black men and women at the hands of police. And so we decided that we would join in a peaceful protest in Palo Alto, an inspiring day. The crowd was everybody in the community. And as we were getting back in the car, I was with the two boys, Jack and Lincoln, and there's a poster about reparations. And Jack asked me what reparations meant. And I said, you know, think about the base word to repair. It's repairing past wrongs. But there's an idea that we could transfer value. We could transfer wealth for past harms. And Jack said to me, well, you know, I haven't done anything bad, so why do I have to pay? And his older brother, Lincoln, said, you know, he's only 12. said, Jack, don't be so stupid. He said, there's 400 years of structural racism in this country. Somebody's got to pay. And I would have never dreamed I would have been talking to my kids this year about pandemics and viruses and vaccines and 400 years of structural racism. It seems like they're far too young to have those conversations, but we did. And then Lincoln turned to me 
in one of those moments and said, Dad, what are you going to do about this? And it just rattled in my head. And so, as you know, Bob, I had a simple idea. I was on a couple boards and said, well, maybe I should resign from those boards and ask those boards to replace me with a black director. And then I talked to a good friend, Tony West. He encouraged me to think bigger. He said, you know, you have voice, you have standing, you're an owner, you're an investor. What can you do? And so before we knew it, we had 40 people around the table and volunteers and CNBC who wanted to help us launch this. And today we have over 70 companies who took the pledge, you know, from Salesforce to United Airlines, from Starbucks to Altimeter. And it's just incredible to see, right? This is not a talent problem. It's not a pipeline problem. It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of creativity. And the board challenge, while it's focused in its first year on a black director, is about all diversity in the boardroom, right? We don't have enough Hispanics in the boardroom. We don't have enough women in the boardroom. You'll see this movement continuing to expand. The play we called in 2021, there are nearly 100 S&P 500 companies, 100 that don't have a black director in the year 2021, 100 out of 500 don't have a black director. And so I'm going to CEOs across America and I'm asking them to adopt two or three companies in the S&P 500 and help to close the gap. I think within a year, every S&P 500 company could have a black director and we will have totally eliminated that gap. That doesn't solve all the problems of racial inequities or inequality. It doesn't solve the wealth gap but it is a step in the right direction. And I could turn to Lincoln. And when he said, what are you going to do about it? I said, this is what we're doing about it. You're a burner and you're part of that burning man culture year round. What does it do for you? What do you get out of it? Well, I have you to thank for introducing me to Burning Man well over a decade ago at this point. What I get out of it has very little resemblance to what most people think Burning Man is. Right? Most people will talk about the raids, the parties, the late nights. Burning Man's a way of thinking. And there's a reason a lot of people in Silicon Valley ended up at Burning Man. There's a reason that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, famously, one of the criteria in hiring Eric Schmidt is he had been to Burning Man. Right? There are these principles of Burning Man that guide the conduct of Burning Man. The most important one to me and it's one I've had to learn and one I really try to practice daily, is no judgment. I think judgmentalism is like one of the basest of human qualities. And it happens every day all around us. And part of the reason we're all judgmental is because it makes us feel better in our own insecurities. And so when we restrain ourselves from making judgment, we open our minds to the possible and that gave rise to this incredible art installation, right? That's not coordinated from the top, but it's this beautiful bottoms up creation of 75,000 person city in the middle of a desert with extraordinary art that reminds you if this is possible, anything's possible. I'm sure that's one of the things that connects the dot between Elon's out at Burning Man, Elon taking people to Mars, right? Saving the planet through electrification. It requires the suspension of judgment. It requires the suspension of dogmas. It requires open-mindedness. And so for me, it's a profoundly important part 
of how I try to think and set my compass every day. I miss it desperately and hope that the community can be back out there in 2021. What advice would you give your 15-year-old self and your 25-year-old self if you could? I just give great gratitude in my heart that I have the time to learn every day. And I challenge myself to evolve into a better leader, a better human being, a better dad, a better friend. And so, you know, of course, I would love to transport and give some of that wisdom to those younger selves. But, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. I spend most of my time thinking about how can I make the most of this extraordinary journey? We're all just stardust. We all suspend disbelief, right? We don't want to think about the fact that our days are finite, but the reality is they are. And so I want every one of them to be a full expression of the best version of myself. And I certainly have bad days, but it's what I aspire to. And with friends like you, Bob, the only thing I worry about is running out of time because we have so much left to do. Math and magic refers to the analytical view and the creativity that must both be present for any successful business or marketing. And we end each episode with our guest shout out on each, because you've seen a lot. Thinking about people you've seen or heard of or know about, who gets the shout out for the best on the analytical side, the mathematician, if you will, and who gets it on the creative side, the magician? I'll start with the creative side, the magician, a mutual friend of ours who has been in my life for 20 years, Rich Barton. He reinvented the travel industry with Expedia. He reinvented the real estate industry with Zillow. He's helping me think about how to reinvent the finance industry. And having somebody like that who's inspired, who thinks about the world differently, happens to go to Burning Man as well, that open-mindedness. His creativity, his passion to understand the world better in all things just really inspires me. And then on the analytical side, I would give a shout out to my mentor, Paul Reeder. I would have a lot of ideas and he would say to me, if all of this stuff in your head isn't in your financial model, if it doesn't show up as part of your future forecast, doesn't show up in your assumptions, then it's not actionable, right? And this discipline around building a framework for decision-making, we all have to make decisions with insufficient information but really understanding the distribution of probabilities, when you can act and when you can't act, was eye-opening for me and really is part of our formula at Altimeter. And so two very important people in my life over the course of the last 20 years, and both represent the opposite sides of that equation, one art and one math. Brad, you have had and are having an amazing life, deep and broad. You're a force for positive change in business and in the world. Thanks for all you're doing, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. Here are a few things I learned from my conversation with Brad. One, essentialism is the North Star of Altimeter, which is simply the idea of doing less better. Brad believes that accepting every opportunity without critical thought dilutes your focus and effectiveness. Two, Brad's recipe for thinking big is, first, be curious. When Brad takes hold of an interest, he learns all he can on the subject and interrogates that knowledge. Then he lets that research turn into informed conviction. Three, Brad understands that leaders cannot simply dictate a corporate culture. 
Instead, Brad reinforces corporate culture through living the company's values. Four, Burning Man taught Brad to suspend his judgment and be more open-minded. According to Brad, this mindset is what has allowed innovators to unlock revolutionary ideas. And five, according to Brad, leaders in technology and entrepreneurship have a responsibility to create a more equitable world. With people like Brad at the helm, we can leave the world better than we found it. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex... Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.